So here we are at the end of Ecclesiastes, the book that's taught us that pursuing pleasure in the world uh, with work, with self-indulgence, uh, with learning and getting smarter, uh, that kind of pursuit is going to be an exercise like trying to bottle up the wind or put a cloud in a bottle. It's going to be an exercise in vanity. That's how that word vain or vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes is used. To try to bottle pleasure up is going to be frustrating. It's going to be um, sort of that thing that you can't fully get your arms around and you're continually going after it only to find that you don't have it in your possession. The, the last paragraph here of Ecclesiastes could be viewed as a rudder on the back of a ship. We started at the front end of the book and we've studied the features of the book, we've studied the themes, and now we come to this back end, the very final section, and it's small in nature, but it is significant in its truth. The truths of this section are what have been giving direction to the whole book here, which would be then giving direction to our lives. Now, I have to say that when I first started this study in Ecclesiastes, I wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen. Um, I think a lot of us weren't sure what was going to happen, and I thought many of you were assuming that kind of gray clouds like what are outside would be coming over us, and we just have to gut it out for 10 or 12 weeks or so. But as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, there's been a ton of feedback. And I think the reason for that is because so many of the books of the Bible are rightly showing us the pitfalls of idolatry, worldly love, um, steering us away from the dangers of this world, and preparing us for eternal life. Ecclesiastes is a book about wisdom on how to live in the world where you're at right now. There's that tension that we feel, yes, and we even sang about this, even so come, Lord, we're looking forward to the future, but I live here right now, like today. So help me live right now, today, in this world. And Ecclesiastes and wisdom literature scratches that itch for us. It helps us live wisely in God's world. Now, our study this morning, there are simply two sections and two ideas that we'll work through. I don't have one singular big idea, but two ideas that are running through this last paragraph. The first one is simply this, the effectiveness of God's word. The effectiveness of God's word. As we move through the first few verses, 9 through 12, several observations. First, we see the content of God's word. Let's uh, start in verse 9, where Solomon says, besides being wise, the preacher, and he's speaking about himself just in third person, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and look what he was doing. He was weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, okay? So this was an exercise of labor for Solomon. He was doing work as he weighed, he studied, and arranged some of these things that he had studied in an orderly manner um, in this book that would be given to his son. Now, not only was Solomon aiming to be careful with this, but you also see that he was aiming to be an encouragement to those who would read this. And so you really see the content of his substance here at the end of verse 10 where it says, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth here. 
Those are two words, delight and truth, that describe God's word. Ecclesiastes is a book that when studied and applied correctly is meant to be a delight, even though it can sting at times, as we'll see in a little bit. But it's a delight when God's word teaches us to repent from sin and it's helpful in its truth that it's pointing us in the direction that we should go. So God's word, its content is delight and truth. Second, its source here that we see in verse 2. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And they are given by one shepherd here. Um, Solomon brings this truth here in verse 11 that even though he was weighing and studying and arranging these proverbs and this wisdom literature, who is the ultimate giver of scripture? He says here in verse 11 that this is all actually given by one shepherd. All right, so Solomon recognizes that the source is truly not himself. So who is this one shepherd? A couple texts as we study scripture with scripture. Psalm chapter 80, verse 1. Give ear, this is a prayer to the shepherd. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Okay, so we see that this title shepherd is being attributed to God. We go to the New Testament, John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says about himself, I am the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So who is Solomon talking about when he says that these words are given by one shepherd? He's talking about God. God is the one who has given these words of Ecclesiastes, and he has given these words through Solomon. And again, you're saying, well, I thought we just read earlier that Solomon was the one who was working hard, gathering, weighing, and arranging all of these studies. Yes, but ultimately, it's God working through Solomon and using Solomon to write down the very words of Ecclesiastes that God wanted him to write down. Okay, so this is called the doctrine of inspiration, where Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. If you're new to the Bible, you'll hear us say things like Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. But what we mean by that is Solomon is the one who wrote it down in human effort, weighing and arranging and studying, but we know that what was written down was truly what God would have Solomon write down. It was inspired by God. So we can say, this is the word from God. So the giver of this, as we've been studying Ecclesiastes, is God himself to help us live wisely in this world. A third characteristic here, it's purpose. In verse 11, we see that his word, God's word, is like a goad and is like a nail. Um, a goad, we're not really used to using that word, probably didn't use it this week. A goad is a cattle prod. In Solomon's day, it would have been a long stick with a sharp point on the end. So you can imagine an 800-pound cow that's standing in the road and not moving. How is that cow going to be moved? Can you move it in your own strength by leaning up against it? 
or a stubborn donkey that won't be pulled? How is it going to be moved? It, it moves along by a sharp point that pokes it. And God's word, Solomon says, is like a goad that stings us at time for the purpose of causing us to move from a bad place where we currently are in our thinking or in our lives to a good place of where we should be. God's word in our lives, we should feel a little, ow, ooh, I felt that. Sometimes you say, you know, he was stepping on my toes this morning. That's the goading effect of the word of God. And Ecclesiastes has really pushed against our thinking in terms of how we seek pleasure. So here are some examples. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon said, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then I had considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon walks down this path and he's like, okay, I'm going to pursue pleasure. By the way, we aim to do that in our own lives. I'm going to try to make the most of this life and I'm going to grab it with both hands. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to hold it tightly and I'm going to find joy in life. And here he comes along with a cattle prod and he says, poke, 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 you're wrong. It's empty. It's like trying to bottle up the wind. It's vain. You're thinking in the wrong way. And by the way, all of the work that you do and all of the toil that you do, do you realize that if you don't have the right mindset, you're actually doing it out of envy of your neighbor who has something and you want what they have. And so you've just been spinning your wheels because you're looking at somebody. It's like, ouch. Is that really what's going on in my heart at times? Is that really what's taking place as I'm going through my Monday through Saturday? And the answer is yes. And I need that honesty from God's word to come along and say, get from the wrong place to the right place. So he says God's word can be like a goat. And folks, let the word of God have its effect, moving you from wrong places to right places. When it stings, instead of throwing an elbow back and saying, don't touch me there, pause for a moment and just think, that's God's prodding work in my life to move me along to walk and live wisely in his world. And not only does he say that it's like a goad that pokes me, it's also like a nail. So he says here, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. Okay, so Solomon's idea of a nail is more than likely a big tent peg. And so folks were often living in tents in this time in history. And so if you have a tent out there, you drive a deep spike into the earth, and then there are strings and ropes that come off a tent that's been set up, and they're tied to that nail peg that's driven down into the ground. Why? To have a stabilizing effect for the tent. 
And so here you have this word of God that has the stinging effect to move us from a wrong place to a right place, but now the word of God also has this effect that when you've moved to a right place, does it just leave you there to, to think things out for your own? No, it has a stabilizing effect where it nails you down and says, okay, this is the right path. This is the right place to be in. So Ecclesiastes has shown us this about enjoyment. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Okay, help me, Solomon, because I just heard that this pursuit of enjoyment is wrong. And he helps us with this. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Okay, there's the tent peg. There's the stabilizer right there. Enjoyment in the world is supposed to be seen as a gift from God. Apart from coming from the hand of God, it's going to be an idol that I'm worshiping. But when it's a gift from God, oh, that stabilizes me. That gives me a right worldview of what I'm supposed to be doing. This is all about worship to him. So folks, here's its purpose. The goading, the stinging effect of the word. The nailing or the stabilizing effect of the word. And in a practical sense, Christians, brothers and sisters, we should all be carrying the goads and nails of scripture. And we should all be feeling the goads and nails of scripture. This is what body life is meant to be. Small group life, Christian friendships. Someone's in small group and they're going down a wrong path and you hear what is coming out of their mouth or you see what's going on in their life what is it that is going to move that 800-pound cow, okay, don't say that to them, but from going down the wrong direction and coming back to the right direction? It's the word of God that we, we, we got it in our holster here. We've got it in our belt here. If someone in my small group or someone in my circle of friends is needing the corrective sting of the word of God, it's not me that's saying it. It's God's word. And folks, we're not coming along with lances for people who are down on the ground and just like throwing spears at them, hoping that they bleed out there. That's not, that's not the effect that we're going after. We're hearing something, seeing something, saying, hey, bud, let me just say, this is what the Bible says. So Christians, you should know that it is best for the body of Christ for us collectively to use the word with one another to correct sinful actions. A, a church can gather on Sundays for an hour here, and I can get up, or a pastor can get up, and we can talk about the word of God. But for the other 167 hours out of the week, this is our guide. And it's our, it's our like, tools that we have to use with one another. When somebody's heading down the right path, affirm them with the word of God. Bring the nails in and, and say, man, you're doing well. That's what the word of God says. I see, I see God's work in your life. I see his spirit working in your life. So its purpose is to move us along. Now there's a warning here in verse 12. He says, my son, beware. Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
Okay, so there's this beware sign. You see a beware of dog sign. It's a call to be aware that what looks nice and fluffy and friendly and it's got a cocked head and could really be somebody that nuzzles up to you could actually be somebody that harms you. When it comes to books that talk about how to understand God or how to live in a way that is honoring to God or how to live your best life, Solomon is saying, beware of anything that goes beyond the words of our great shepherd. It might look nice, it might sound nice, but it could be very dangerous. Jesus taught the same principle in Matthew chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. He was telling his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they, the disciples, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. It was a comparison. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So beware, what would be a practical application of this? Let me encourage you, church. Beware of books written by prosperity gospel teachers like Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers. Beware of books written by Jen Hatmaker who affirms sinful sexuality, not biblical sexuality. Be aware of mystics who do not believe in the inspiration of God's word, who think that they have a true understanding of God that is not found in Scripture and that parts of Scripture shouldn't really be there because, you know, they're, they're just pointless or they're not relevant. Beware of authors who take what is plain in Scripture and obvious in Scripture and somehow twist it to become something other than what Scripture is. I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but then you see this truth that is plain and obvious, and later on they're saying, well, that's not what it actually meant. What it actually means is this. Beware of authors who claim to have gone to heaven for 90 minutes or have gone to hell for 23 minutes. They're adding to Scripture things that aren't there. Solomon says, beware of these. And again, we're looking at Scripture itself and saying, God has given us what we need in his word to live a life of godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So again, if you're new to Scripture, if you're new to the Bible... This Bible is sufficient because it's been given to us by God. And what is it sufficient for? It is sufficient for us to do every work in a way that's good and honoring to the Lord. It won't teach you how to make a perfect Thanksgiving turkey. It just won't. So we're not talking about sufficiency in that way. But God cares about your attitude while you are making the turkey. And in that sense... The word of God is sufficient for you. It's not going to teach you how to change the oil on your car, but it will teach you how to be honoring to the Lord with your attitude and the words that you use while you're changing the oil on your car. And so we come to this and we just say, the word of God is sufficient for us. How will you know if the word of God is effective like goads and like nails and it's given to us by God. How will you know if the word of God is having an effect on your life? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it. It's supposed to be effective like this. How will, 
Do you know if the word of God is having an effect in your life? You'll know by the way that you make your decisions. Do you regularly go back to the word of God as the source of wisdom and understanding and ask, how would God's word have me make this decision in life going forward? Or do you say, well, so-and-so says this and I should just go with what they say. They might be saying what's true to God's word, but do you know that it's true to God's word? Do you see truths from God's word goading you off the path that you are on and in a direction now that is right and obedient to the Lord? Can you look at the past and say, yes, thankfully God's word was sufficient. It stopped me right there. It addressed my attitude. It addressed my decision-making. And it brought about repentance. It brought about a change in my life. You might be a non-Christian here this morning, and the word of God has a word for you. You need to repent from your sins. And so the goad, the stinger of Scripture comes in and says, we're all sinners, and we deserve God's judgment and wrath. And that stings because we don't like to think of ourselves as being bad people, but we are before God. And so the word of God says, you must repent of your sins, but just repentance by itself, becoming a good person is not enough. You must lay hold of Jesus Christ, who was the Savior, is the Savior, who lived the perfect life of obedience, and you receive his life in faith. So it's not you. You can't be a self-sufficient person with God. And again, that stings, doesn't it? But God has given us the gift that we need in his son. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me just encourage you. The word of God is going to sting you along the way, and it's going to point you in the right direction, and it's pointing you to Jesus Christ who needs to be your savior. And if you haven't received him yet, you can receive him by faith, even in your chair right now while I'm talking. If you've got more questions, you can ask whoever brought you or you can ask me afterwards. Church, as we come through Ecclesiastes and as Solomon wraps up this section here, it is true that the word of God is sufficient. It is effective in our lives. And let me just encourage you all the more to value it. Value it in your study time. Value it in our times together. Value it by attending ABF hour where teaching is happening. Value it in your small groups, exchanging truths of scripture back and forth. So, what's going to be the application of God's word in our lives? Let's just move on to point number two. It sort of moves logically along. This is the lifestyle of God's people. Okay, so here's the word of God. It's like a stinger and a stabilizer. Uh, it should have an effect on our lives. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here is the lifestyle of people who live under God's word. Verse 13, the end of the matter. Here's Solomon. He's just wrapping everything up that he's talked about. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Do what? Fear God and keep his commandments. The lifestyle of God's people is going to look like fearing God and keeping his commandments. What is fearing God? We've talked about this several times. It means that you have a respect, a high respect for God, not out of some sort of obligatory duty like a student has to go to school and sit in the desk and 
revere the teacher. And in that student's heart, they can be thinking and pondering, this teacher, I don't want to be here. I just have to be here. That's not fear. That's not biblical fear. Biblical fear is a reverence or an awe, somebody whom you admire and you see that person in a category all by himself. I think one of the clearest examples or illustrations of fear in God in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham had been promised by God that he would have a son. He would be an heir. So in chapter 22, verse 2, here comes this son. It was Abraham's only son. Abraham and Sarah, now in their 100s, more than likely, Abraham fathered this son at 100. It was an obvious miracle. He was believing God about this. And God comes to him in chapter 22, verse 2, and he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Whoa! Where did this come from? Abraham takes a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and you can imagine him getting to the base of the mountain. He takes Isaac, his son, with him. And they start walking up the mountain. Abraham doesn't have the whole of Scripture. I mean, this is happening in Genesis chapter 22. All that he has about God is what God has revealed to him. And so here he goes up on top of this mountain with his son Isaac. His faith, his fear of God is strong. I don't know what is going through his mind and what specific challenges he's facing, but we know that he's walking in obedience to God, carrying out this act, preparing to sacrifice his own son. Story continues, chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. Isaac is ready to be sacrificed. Abraham takes up the knife, <clears throat> but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, folks, just to extend this illustration and maybe apply it, um, God is never going to call you to physically harm, sacrifice your children. You might have to sacrifice their approval of you. There will be times when you have to show your children that your reverence and love for God is greater than your love for them. Your kids really want something or they want you to do something for them. But you know that that's not in keeping with God's commandments. And so here are your children at this level whom you love and you rightly love. God's given them to you to love. But God says, above all, you must fear him. He must be above your children. He must be above your family. And so sometimes you have to say no to the requests of those closest to you because you revere God more than you revere them. And the point of this is that God must unquestionably be the central part of your life. That's what God is calling 
each of us to, to fear him, to have a reverence and awe for him in such a way that he is unquestionably the center of your life, even if it feels costly. That's what it means to revere God, to have a fear of him. He is set on a pedestal in your heart above all things, and even if it means you have to repent because you were traveling after this that you wanted, no, here's God. I must fear him and revere him. We've seen this theme throughout Ecclesiastes several times. Let me just give you a few texts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Now, nobody can do that. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it. Why has God done this? So that people fear before him. I mean, there's just one reason right there for you to unquestionably have God as the center of your life. Will you do anything that ever lasts like God will? No. I mean, I I try to do things with the lawn, and it, it doesn't even last. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7. For when dreams increase, you know how crazy your dreams are. I mean, just bizarre. They're like all over the place. Well, here are words. They're the same way. Words grow many. There is vanity. But God is not like that. God is the one you must fear. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, he seems to get away with it all the time. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Okay, so here's Solomon saying, it's well for those who unquestionably have God at the center of their lives. Is there momentary pleasure walking away from God? Oh yeah, you better believe it. That's why Satan dangles the carrot over here. He lures you away because there is a little bit of momentary pleasure that will lead you away. How did he do it with David and Bathsheba? Right, here's this momentary pleasure. Let me lead you away. But what's the end of this? Destruction. With God and with sticking with him unquestionably as the center of your life, it will go well for you. This is where enjoyment in the book of Ecclesiastes is leading us. So you're in a hard time right now and you're tempted. God, should I follow you? Should I be faithful to you? Yes, living wise in God's creation is saying, I'm going to hold on to God and not buy into the lies of the world and abandon him. Now there are two reasons that Solomon gives at the end of his book for why God should be unquestionably the center of our lives. You see it in verse 13. Again, fear God and keep his commandments. What reason? For this is the whole duty of man. Now, some of your Bibles are going to translate that just a little bit differently. Some will say this is the whole nature of humankind. Um, Others are going to use the word duty that's here. There's a challenge with the Hebrew text because it's very wooden. The word duty is not in the Hebrew text. And so what English translators try to do is, how can we smooth this out and still capture the original meaning? The the meaning, if you will, is that this is the whole of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole of man. 
meaning it is our essence. It's what we've been designed to do. We've actually been designed by God to have our attention on him. And that's how it was all the way back in Genesis chapter one when God created Adam. He's like, walk in fellowship with me and do what? Obey these commandments and life will go well. What happens when you don't? Well, here we are. We're created, we're designed by God to live most fully and enjoyably by living it in relationship with him, close to him. We've been designed this way. So some of you might remember from the school playground. For me, it was certain camps that I went to. There was that tetherball court, like a 10-foot pole, and off the top of the 10-foot pole is a 5-foot rope, and now down at the end of that 5-foot rope is a ball about the size of a volleyball, but it's not a volleyball because it's been molded and fashioned with a loop on it. And that loop just goes right into the ball itself. And so that rope that comes down off the top goes through that little loop on the end of that ball so that that ball cannot go flying off. It gets hit back and forth. And the nature of tetherball is you're trying to wrap that ball all the way around the, the pole in your direction. Whoever knocks it around in their direction wins. So it gets knocked back and forth, back and forth. It keeps wrapping closer and closer and closer. The essence of that tetherball is for the closeness of staying near the pole. You can't use that as a kickball. It just doesn't work. It's, it's got this loop that's going to stick out. You can't use it as a volleyball. You can't use it as, it's just not going to work. It's been designed for this one specific application. And here is our relationship to God. We have been designed, this big category, with this one specific direction, to stay close to God, to fear him and to keep his commandments. So there's the goad to sting us back to God. There's the nail that keeps us close to God. And Jesus picked up with this with other imagery. I love the words that he used in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, which I think meet us so many times where we are. Jesus comes to those who are with him and he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. The burden is heavy right now. I'm feeling it. And he says, I will give you rest. Now what's the imagery that he uses here? He says, take my yoke. Remember the yoke picture? It's for the oxen. You've got one ox and he sticks his head through that collar there. There's a wooden beam that goes over his neck to the other ox and it locks him in. Why? So that they would stay close together. So take my yoke. Stay close to me. Learn from me. Who is he? He's gentle and he is lowly in heart. And what is the conclusion there? When you're close to God, what do you find? Rest for your souls. Like, that's where God would have us right now, close to himself. Each human has been designed by God purposefully and specifically with this purpose, to stay close to him. That's the purpose of it. There's a second reason found in verse 14. Why should we fear God and keep his commandments? For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. So this could be like a motivation, um, there is some certainty and there's uncertainty here when we talk about judgment. Certainty, let's address that. Romans 8 verse 1, for Christians, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have the gift of eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven. There is no condemnation. But there's this aspect of uncertainty when it comes to judgment. How is judgment going to go down before God? I thought I've already got the forgiveness that Christ offers. I don't really know how this all works, but let me just point you to a few passages and hopefully they'll just sort of round us out and raise our awareness here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, there's a text that informs our view of standing before God. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. So he's talking to believers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay, so there's some sort of judgment that takes place. Greater strictness. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to God. All right, so you see the tension that I'm talking with? Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins. There's no condemnation, but... There is some measure of accountability that we have to God. We're all answerable to God. So when we look at the next decision that we have to make about whether or not we are going to fear God, whether we're going to stay close to him or walk away, one of the motives here is, hey, we're accountable to God. So let's wrap this up. A question for us as we conclude our study. Do we think that we truly deserve joy in this world? I mean, thinking about it from a Christian perspective, do you and I deserve joy right now? The answer would be, we don't deserve it. All you have to do is look at the cross because that's what we deserve. That's, that's the result. That's the punishment. That's what we deserve because of our sin. We deserve God's holy judgment coming out on us. We don't deserve any joy right now. First sin, done, over with, guilty, violated the holiness of God. Do I really deserve joy in God's creation right now? No, I don't. But we read Ecclesiastes, and it moves us, and we say, but God, you're giving it to me. You're giving me the opportunity right now to enjoy creation. You're giving me the opportunity to enjoy relationships. You're giving me the opportunity to enjoy tastes and smells. You're giving me the opportunity to enjoy a relationship with you now as a believer. And we step back and we say, okay, I don't deserve joy, but thank God that he has initiated a relationship with you and with me if you're a believer. God has been long-suffering, not willing that we should perish in our sins, but instead that we should be recipients of his mercy. He's initiating the one or the closeness to us by giving us his son and by giving us his word that is regularly stinging us away and nailing us down next to him. Do I deserve joy and do I deserve this close relationship with him and all of the gifts and benefits, both physical and spiritual? I don't. I've sinned against God. 
But thank God for his gift of mercy and grace to us in Jesus. And so now we have it. And Solomon and the writers of Scripture say, rejoice, enjoy. That's what Solomon is saying through the book of Ecclesiastes. This has been given to you from the hand of God. Receive it from the hand of God as a gift. God wants you God commands you to be joyful. And how is that going to happen? Well, we see it here at the end of the book. By fearing God, keeping him unquestionably as the center part of our lives, and keeping his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Let's pray.